It is November 2nd, 2008. We're looking at uh, Lesson 4 of the Epistle to the Galatians, grafted in. Uh, this uh, title of this lesson I've entitled uh, The Rabbinic Solution Part 2. Let's bless God. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and safeguard you. May the Lord illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. We've been looking at, for the last uh, three lessons, we've been looking at the uh, uh, setting up the historical uh, the cultural background for uh, a view of uh, and a reading of the epistle to the Galatians. We've uh, actually are going to continue that for another um, uh, two lessons uh, after this one. Our goal is to uh, provide the backdrop so that when we get to the epistle of, of, of the Galatians, we're actually reading it uh, as best we can in an unbiased way uh, more in line with uh, those who would have been receiving the letter. Now, clearly, we <clears throat> we can't uh, we can't erase all of our cultural and uh, theological bias. But one of the things we want to do is simply uh, look at things and try to come up with uh, an understanding of things, so that when we do get to that point, we don't um, uh, we don't go down trails that were never intended by the Apostle Paul. One of the things that uh, we'll examine, of course, in the future is Paul's relationship uh, to uh, Judaism at large, uh, Paul's relationship uh, to the scriptures of Israel and the cultural and the uh, traditions of Israel. And uh, what, we, uh, what we know is, uh, from Paul's own account, is that Paul uh, considers himself a Jew of Jews. And in fact, he, uh, he says that he'd never departed from the traditions of the elders. Um, from that, we, we, we certainly read Paul's words through the prism of uh, specifically Protestant Christianity. Uh, and, and because of that, um, uh, we, we actually are prone to read our own theological uh, difficulties, our own theological, uh, with regard to the, to the Protestant Reformation, uh, our own theological uh, points of importance. Uh, certainly, Galatians fits, the category, fits that category very well uh, with regard to the uh, Protestant Reformation. Uh, uh, Martin Luther and others used the book of Galatians in a way to uh, justify, uh, possibly correctly, I don't know, but to justify a break with the, the Roman Catholic Church. And because of that, it has framed the theology around this book it has framed the theology around the epistles of Paul uh, in, in such a way that sometimes it is completely uh, foreign to what we might have, have otherwise read 
if we had been reading Paul's uh, epistles um, with a cultural and a historical background. Uh, and I'm setting all this up to remind us why we're spending all of this time not studying Galatians while we're preparing to study Galatians. Uh, it is really important that we have this background uh, before we, uh, we jump in again. Uh, ironically, it's not that we haven't read Galatians, but ironically, the book of Galatians is a mystery to most people because they have no need for it. Other than reading chapter, parts of chapter 5 and chapter 6, most people coming from a Christian background have no need for Galatians in the classic understanding of what Galatians is all about. Uh, the reason being is they've already been convinced that they're not they're not saved by works and therefore they don't they don't need it. Uh, all it is is usually just pulled out of a dusty bookshelf uh, in time to address uh, some wayward messianic that who might be uh, be thinking it'd be a good thing to start eating kosher. Uh, and obviously, this is not uh, what what this book is about. It is not a book of uh, and we should not use it as a book of counter, uh, of counter uh, apologetics either. There's an important message in the epistle to the Galatians that either side can miss if they don't keep focused on what the true issue is. And as we've seen for the last several weeks, the true issue uh, surrounding the first century was not whether one was saved by grace or one was saved by, by, by works. It was not a contest between faith and works. The contest, rather, is whether Gentiles have a part in the world to come. And if they have a part in the world to come, how? How is it possible? Now, those coming from a Gentile Christian background might find this to be completely, uh, completely incomprehensible. That's all they know. All we know as Gentiles in Christian background is that, uh, of course, Gentiles have a part in the world to come. Everybody that believes in Jesus is going to heaven. Uh, unfortunately f uh, for us, I mean, fortunate for, for us that, although that may, may, may in fact be true, unfortunately for us, it has, it has so tainted our vision uh, that we are uh, with difficulty Peeling back the layers, the layers of bias and historical inaccuracies to see what is truly being said here. And this is what, and this contest is what Paul's epistles are about. He is the, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. It is so important for him, for people to get this, uh, this idea that the Gentiles have a part because they have been joined to Israel by the work of Messiah. As the apostle to the Gentiles, this is his unique calling. And as we get into the first chapter of Galatians in the next, in the next few weeks, we're going to see how important it is to him and why it's important to him. It may surprise you as to why it is so important for Paul to, uh, to be on mission, to be as an emissary uh, to the Gentiles. Let's start with this week's lesson. Uh, we, last week, to frame this, we talked about the rabbinic solution part one. We saw the rabbinic solution to this question of how the Gentiles are, in fact, uh, can, be, uh, can have a part in the world to come, that the way would be that they have to become Jewish. In other words, no longer Gentile, but Jewish. Uh, we're going to see a variation on that as well today. But that, it, it, in, the, in the second and third century BCE, 
two, three hundred years before the birth of the birth of Messiah, we saw that Judaism form, formalized and codified this process whereby a Gentile could become Jewish. Now, uh, to some people, that seems to be uh, what we're talking about: the religion. Are you talking about? You're talking about uh, you know the cultural. You're talking about becoming Jewish. What genetically? You know, uh, ethnically. And the answer is all of the above. Uh, the, the the shock to some people is that ritual uh, conversion, ritual circumcision, uh, or the process of ritual conversion, which as we saw last week is called by shorthand rich, uh, circumcision, and that's the way Paul most often uses it in the apostolic scriptures, that in fact that process was developed to... to basically create ethnic Jews of people who were formerly Gentile. Um, if, you, if you've if you missed last week's lesson, let me encourage you to go back and spend some time uh, both with the study and then, and then possibly listening to the audio and using the outlines online. And the reason why is because this is, this is an important piece of this picture, especially as we start looking actually at the text of Galatians. But this week, this is part two. Uh, what we're going to see is it, it, it goes... It goes even deeper than simply this issue of, of making a proselyte or making a, a, a ritual convert to Judaism. And as we saw last week, proselyte is a Greek word. Proselytos is a Greek word that actually is, was formulated by the, uh, by the, uh, the sages who translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek the Septuagint in the 3rd century BCE, they created this word which basically meant one who, who comes, uh, comes over or one who approaches, comes near uh, to describe a ger toshav or a, a sojourner, a stranger that lives among you. So with that in mind, let's look at the, the rabbinic solution uh, part two. And I'm reading, this is reading from uh, the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Yevamot 47b. When he, that is speaking of the proselyte, comes up out of his ablution, immersion, he is deemed to be an Israelite in all respects. Uh, the rabbis talk about the, the, this unique change, this being born again, no longer a Gentile, but actually born again as a Jew, as an Israelite, uh, that in fact... All former relationships cease to exist. Uh, familial relationships, your father, your mother, are no longer your father and mother. Uh, now you have new relationships. Now you, Abraham is your father. Uh, Isaac, Jacob are your fathers. That all Israel is your brother uh, and, and sister. And in, in that regard, that even, although it, it, we, they, didn't, they didn't do this, but even as a matter of, of rhetorical proof, if you previously, uh, if, if, your, if your Gentile sister uh, remained a Gentile, uh, after going through ritual conversion, because you now are a Jew, you had no tie to them, there was actually a provision where you could, you know, theoretically even have a marriage uh, between uh, what would have been considered former brother and sister, because now it's as if you had never been uh, uh, related uh, to that person previously. And this is from Isaiah 56, uh, verses 1 through 3a and verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold of it, who keeps from deviling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing evil. Do not let the son of a foreigner, 
that's not Cree, that is not uh, Gear, as we saw last week, who has joined himself to the Lord, speaks, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from, my, from his people. Also the sons of the foreigner, who join themselves to the Lord, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those that are gathered to him. And as we saw from last week, the answer, the rabbinic answer part one, was not to take Gentiles and make them into Jews, but rather to recognize that there was one God uh, to both the Jew and the nations, that there was one God for both Israel and those who would come and attach themselves to the Lord and would find themselves in, in union with the house of Israel. And in that we see that this house of the Lord would be a house of prayer. Even the burnt offerings of these from the nations would be accepted on his altar. Now remember again what we, what we, what we, what we saw early on when we, when we started this study that in fact the Soreg the, the wall of division that existed in the second temple, uh, the short wall that kept the court of the Gentiles and kept the Gentiles out so that they could not approach the temple itself. They could not come into the temple and offer offerings. They were forbidden. Only those who had gone through ritual circumcision, that is, in the rabbinic sense, become Jews, were permitted to approach the Lord as in, in making an offering. Now, this is, uh, this is obviously, these passages are, uh, it is obvious that the, that the rabbinic solution part one, that is circumcision, ritual conversion, was not the answer. Not, and as we, as we stood to, to clarify it, as we saw, it's not that there wasn't a reason for it. It's not that there wasn't good logic behind it. There absolutely was. Gentiles, there's no way of knowing where they've been, where they've come from. They could be defiling the holy sanctuary. They, Gentiles could, could lead us astray into the worship of, of idols and other things. So there's a, there's a, there's a true basis for uh, what I've called the rabbinic solution of, of ritual conversion. It's absolutely understandable. And it's why Paul is trying to make this case that it, that even though it may be understandable, it's not God's plan. Let's see why. Uh, here's some questions for our study today. Was Judaism's approach to Gentiles monolithic in the time before the destruction of the temple in, the, in 70 of the Common Era? Did all Jews approach this issue of Gentiles in the same way? Knowing that multiple sects of Judaism existed in the first century and before, was the issue of Gentile inclusion ever something that defined any of those sects of Judaism? In other words, is there something about, uh, is there something about, about Gentile inclusion that maybe one of the sects or not uh, actually uh, uh, treated differently than the others? Is there any documentation of the protocols of dealing with Gentiles in the, for, in the first century and before? How do we go about it? Uh, where do we read about it? Uh, is there any, is there some event that can give me greater insight into the first century issue of Gentile inclusion? And of course, today, we will all be discussing that event, and the answer is, there is.
there is a profound uh, event that takes place somewhere between the year 10 and 20 before the Common Era. A profound event uh, that shapes and should shape all of our approach to this question in the apostolic scriptures. Uh, this is the is the is the crack in the stone that uh, eventually uh, drives the drives the the issue wide apart, where we can see clearly uh, the foundation that lies beneath. To understand more clearly what it is that Paul, what it is that motivates Paul as he writes these things, obviously the unction of the Holy, Holy Spirit, but what motivates, in Paul's mind, why is this such a big issue? Why is this thing of Gentile inclusion so important? And, and uh, today, as we discuss this today, in, in, my, in my study of, of, of Galatians and in, in study of Paul, to me, this is like the, to me, this was like the missing piece that, that helped explain it all to me. Uh, and I hope that it helps others as well as we as we get deeper into this. This is so important that we go through this. I think there's a dichotomy in Ezekiel chapter uh, chapter 44. Uh, we see uh, um, something quite different from what we see in Ezekiel 47. Let's read Ezekiel 44 verses 7 through 9. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house. And when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, they, then they broke my covenant because all your abominations. And you have not kept my charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. Well, that sounds quite quite convincing there from Ezekiel chapter 44 verses 7 through 9 that the idea of ritual conversion probably does sound quite right if you consider that. It says not only uncircumcised in heart, we saw this last week, uh, the idea that the uncircumcised heart is, is that God wanted something more than just simply circumcised of the flesh, but he wanted hearts that were circumcised. That is the heart of stone cut away and have, that, have hearts that were, that were open and, and uh, could be motivated by him uh, but instead, we see that it's not just the heart, but it's also off the flesh. It's not just to say, well, well, my heart is circumcised. But it says circumcised in the flesh, that they can't come into the sanctuary. Uh, it seems like maybe, maybe they got it right. Uh, maybe we shouldn't turn every Gentile who wants to worship the God of Israel into a Jew. Uh, go through ritual conversion, circumcision, which included, uh, before in the temple times, included bringing an offering, uh, an, an agreement. A statement of agreement, uh, not only to abandon idolatry, but to uh, follow all of the words of the written Torah and the oral Torah, or uh, the second Torah as it is, the Torah that's given by the mouth, that which was transmitted, uh, uh, traditionally transmitted from Moses and Joshua and the, and the men of the great assembly. Um, uh, but listen to this. This is Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 21 through 23. Thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that, when you, that, that you will divide it as, by lot as an inheritance for yourself and for the strangers, Ger Toshav, who dwell among you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as a native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever... 
In whatever tribe this stranger dwells, there you'll give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. Uh, notice this isn't saying an Israelite who, or who is no longer an Israelite. And of course, the uh, um, the um, Jewish Publication Society version of the of the of the Tanakh would, translates this idea of a, a stranger or sojourner who dwells among you. They would translate it proselyte because. Uh, following the Septuagint's lead. They actually said, well, by context, this is not someone who's a bad Gentile. This is a good Gentile. This is a Gentile who worships God. Well, they should be treated as a, as, as a native-born in every regard. Uh, so it's only over time that, that the word proselyte then became to mean someone who actually had gone through ritual conversion or, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in, in their minds, become a Jew. Um, so this dichotomy exists. Which is it? Uh, the Lord wanted Gentiles in this community, uh, but the problem is the bad Gentiles lead Israel astray. And then we saw, of course, last week, about 200 of the co- before the common era, Jews, and the answer was, turn the good Gentiles into Jews. And we follow through these, this list of, of, of necessary steps, ritual conversion uh, or ritual circumcision. And uh, we need to make, always make sure we talk about circumcision. And we're not talking about, we're not, we're not confusing ritual circumcision or, 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 or conversion with the, with the commandments regarding circumcision. There is a commandment to circumcise on the eighth day. There is a commandment to circumcise uh, Abraham, to circumcise himself and his household. Uh, we saw a commandment for adults uh, to be circumcised before going into the, into the land um, in, in, in the book of Joshua. Uh, so, so we know that it's, it, it's not just to be circumcised of the heart, but also to be circumcised of the flesh. Um, a couple definitions are important for us to, to understand before we get any, any deeper into this. And, we, and uh, if you did, if you looked up in your, uh, if you if you did your work in your in your workbook, you saw these uh, definitions. Uh, and these are as best that we can piecing together uh, from various sources. Uh, basically, three categories in the first century. Later on, we're going to have more than three categories, or a blurring of the line of certain categories. But in the first century, three categories of Gentiles: pagans. Those are those are obviously. Idolaters. They're so far out. We know who they are, and they don't worship God. Is the main thing. So those are the pagan or the heathen, as the Talmud calls them. And then there's the proselytes. The proselytes are those Gentiles in the first century who had gone through formal conversion and were considered Jews. Really, were considered Jews uh, or Israelites, both religiously and ethnically. And we saw, uh, and we saw that specifically when we read uh, Yevamot uh, 47, where he comes up out of his immersion. He is deemed to be an Israelite in all respects. Now, the immersion was the last step. In fact, there's a great debate in the Talmud about whether, you know, between the time when uh, the circumcision takes place, you have to heal uh, before uh, immersion, the ablution, uh, you know, whether they're considered to be Israelites or not, and, uh, and whether the law, whether the Torah applies to them. And in fact, the conclusion is, no, the Torah does not apply to them until after their immersion. It's after their immersion. The immersion is the most important. That is what deems them being born again, or, as it were, born anew that they become a new person <clears throat> with new relationship both with God and uh, with, uh, with Israel. That's proselytes. And that was, we know from the book of Acts, in fact, and from other sources, we know very clearly that this is a recognized category of Gentiles. And then we have this other group called God-fearers. 
And, and the difficulty with this group is that it appears to some that the God-fearers is some sort of special title. Uh, however, uh, the Talmud, uh, about year 300 to 600, years between that span, after the Mishnah, uh, about, in the, in the, uh, about the year 200, the Talmud is basically redacted uh, after that period up until 600 of the Common Era. The t- by the time we get to the Talmud, we basically have expunged the term God-fearer. Uh, it's no longer there. It's not being used. Uh, the basic reference that we have for God-fearer is actually found here in the Apostolic Scriptures, specifically in the Book of Acts. Uh, so whether God-fearer is an official, uh, is a, is an official um, designation or not is, 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 in some people's mind, doubtful. However, these are a group of people that had not become proselytes, and yet they had, in fact attached themselves to the God of Israel and in fact had, uh, had, had, had every desire to be a, a complete worshiper of the God of Israel and hence find themselves to be very, very uh, close and, and uh, uh, participating as best they could with, uh, with, uh, with Israel, with Jews. Uh, we see that in the book of Acts and we've spent some time looking at some of those already. We'll look at them again in the future. But we've seen that where there's a lot of Gentiles there uh, in the synagogues on, sh- on, on the Sabbath. <clears throat> and they're there oftentimes because they're not proselytes, they're still considered Gentiles. Sometimes they're at the doors of the synagogue. They're at the windows looking in. They're not included. They're not a part. Uh, certainly in some venues they were tolerated even more so outside the land of Israel and if they were wealthy and that's what we're going to see when we get to Acts chapter 10 that puts this is the category that we would put uh, Cornelius and his household in not proselytes they're still Gentiles however because they're Gentiles certain things still apply to them even though they're seen as worshippers of the one true God now uh, these are also called Ger Tzadik, or righteous sojourners, righteous strangers. These Ger Tzadik, uh, they're righteous. The problem is, when we get to the, the age of the Talmud, these are actually, that term Ger Tzadik is actually changed, and it no longer applies to these god fears, but instead applies to the proselytes. Here's a, an important thing that we're going to get today, and that is that Judaism, uh, in, in the second century and after, actually became very, very harsh towards these people in the middle that weren't proselytes. Very harsh. And in fact, they were essentially, they were essentially, they disappear from Judaism. Uh, we don't see them anymore. So this is more of a second century phenomenon, and it's a little before, to see these God-fearers. <clears throat> the problem also is a change of terminology. Just like we saw uh, uh, proselytos, or proselyte change its its by change its context change its definition uh, from the time that it was first formulated by the writers of the Septuagint until sometime in the second century BCE where it went from being somebody anybody that that basically obviously is a part of of the worship of the one true God who happens to be Gentile to the point where it became those who had gone through formal ritual conversion or uh, circumcision uh, that's it became that. In the same way, this Ger Tzadik, this righteous sojourner, righteous stranger, righteous Gentile, uh, in, the, in the first century, that term was reformulated so that Ger Tzadik, by the time of the Talmud, only refers to proselytes. And, uh, and instead, 
the term Ger Toshav, which we've been using, and we've been using, uh, we've been using, and if you follow the word, the term Ger Toshav, and compare it to, in the Talmud, and compare it to uh, the usage in the, in the Septuagint, or in the JPS, Jewish Publication Society version of the Tanakh, you're going to find that Ger Toshav is almost, is oftentimes, by context, translated proselyte. But interestingly enough, the Ger Toshav in the, in the Talmud becomes a Gentile who keeps the Noahide laws. Uh, so we've had this change between the first century and the time of the Talmud. We had this change of definitions where a Ger, a Godfear, or a Ger Tzadik, a righteous Gentile, a Ger Tzadik, that term becomes the term for proselytes. Uh, and then in the time of the Tal- uh, Talmud, Ger Toshav, which the Septuagint translates uh, proselyte, becomes a term instead to apply to a Gentile who kept the Noachide laws. And the Talmud goes into very great detail with the Noachide laws. Modern Judaism spends a lot of time with the Noachide laws. In fact, it becomes a matter of almost evangelicalism to uh, get all of the Gentiles uh, to, uh, to, in fact, agree to the Noachide laws and Messiah will come, as some would say. Uh, the problem with it is these Noachide laws, or these so-called seven laws given to Noah and to Gentiles, the nations, Israel first, and then, of course, then the Torah was given, which gives us 613. Uh, the problem is that's totally anachronistic. Uh, it's absolutely anachronistic. We have no reference to the Noachide laws at all until, uh, until the time of the Tosefta, uh, which would be after the redaction of the Mishnah, which would be uh, late 2nd century common era, probably 3rd century common era, is the first time we ever seen the term uh, no, referenced at all to the Noachide laws. Uh, now, the rabbis go to great, great detail, and I appreciate the detail they go to, to describe various places where the Noachide laws fit into the, to the text, and, I, and, of, and of course, um, we would appreciate some of those. The problem is that we can find no reference outside of, of a, uh, a less than literal reading to find the Noachide laws, what they are. Uh, so-called Messianic groups that uh, try to apply Ma- Acts 15 and the four so-called laws in Acts chapter 15 to the Noachide laws are, are equally uh, anachronistic. Uh, Noachide laws are, a, are an invention, and I hope that we begin to see this, are an invention to explain the problem with the Ger Toshav. Judaism becomes very, uh, in the second century, because of Christianity's rise and because Christianity's sometimes competition has begun to be very, very suspicious, more suspicious of Gentiles. And because of that, then this whole issue of, of uh, 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 Ger Toshav becoming those who followed the so-called Noachide laws. Uh, but again, uh, there's, no, there's no scholarly... A basis for the for the understanding of the Noachide laws existing prior to the uh, late second or even early third century uh, of the Common Era. Um, let's move on. Uh, let's go to. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about three Gentiles. This kind of helps us explain uh, the Talmud, uh, the Talmud's account of uh, of of. Um, uh, how how Judaism treats Gentiles or how they approach Gentiles, the Talmud's account uh, we consider this to be uh, a a a uh, 
extant text, but it, it provides us with some background that will help us understand uh, something very important that we're going to study this, this uh, today, and that is the relationship between, um, between uh, two houses of Pharisaic Judaism. Uh, one house, uh, house of Shammai, or Beit Shammai, the Academy of Shammai, and the other being uh, the house of Halil, or Beit Halil. Both of these two are, are uh, considered uh, uh, these, this dueling pair, as we see after, after the uh, time of uh, Ezra and the Great Assembly. We basically see two important rabbis heading up uh, both the Sanhedrin and the uh, uh, and the uh, um, and the and basically uh, uh, Pharisaic Judaism uh, during during this uh, the time between uh, about the fourth century before the Common Era and and the first century. Hillel and Shemaiah are the last of these uh, uh, pairs, uh, so they're, they're equally uh, they have equal standing in some regards. One's the president of the uh, uh, Sanhedrin, one's the one's the uh, uh, one's the uh, uh, prince of the of the of the Sanhedrin. We see this shared shared uh, shared uh, duties, as it were. And, and with regard to Hillel and Shammai, they're both Pharisees, and uh, and we see that this um, uh, that their approach to Gentiles is somewhat different. Uh, in Shabbat, in the Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat uh, 31a, or Sabbath 31a, there's an account of three Gentiles that approach, uh, that approach Shammai and Halil. Uh, in the, the first account, uh, this Gentile comes and asks, asks Shammai, how many Torahs do you have? And of course the response from Shammai is there's two. There's the written Torah, there's the oral Torah. And he says, well, I'll tell you what. I would like to be a proselyte. However, I only want to accept the written Torah. Only what's written. I don't accept this, the, the tradition or what's transmitted orally. Only the written Torah. And, and it says Shammai, uh, Shammai basically repulses him. He you know, yells at him, gets rid of him, and sends him out. He's angry. He leaves. Uh, this same proselyte now goes to Halil, and Halil agrees to accept him as a proselyte. No, no preconditions. Certainly we would understand that Halil heard the same thing, only the oral, give me only the written, only the oral. But Halil accepts him. So he's going to train him to become a convert to Judaism, to go through ritual conversion. On the first day uh, of teaching this, uh, pro, this uh, prospective convert to Judaism, he, he teaches him uh, basically the, the Hebrew Aleph Bet. Aleph, and he teaches it this way, Aleph Bet, Gimel, Dalit. And then the guy comes to him the next day, the proselyte, or the, the prospective proselyte comes to him the next day, and this time he reverses it. And he says, Dalit, Gimel, Bet, Aleph. And he says, what's up with this? You switched it. Uh, you didn't teach me this way yesterday. Now you're teaching it backwards. And Halil's response then is, well, you see, uh, now, uh, even though you have to learn the Aleph Bet, now you know that the Aleph Bet actually has a order uh, from one direction to the other. Uh, and this is the same way it is with the Oral Torah. Uh, you could know there's an Aleph Bet, but you don't know whether you read it, you know, Aleph Bet Gimel Dalit, or whether you read it Dalit Gimel uh, Aleph, or Bet Aleph, except by by a tradition, and I'm teaching you that the oral Torah is the same way. So that's that's the one 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 pagan that comes. Now another Gentile comes and asks Shemai, he says, "Make me a proselyte this time on condition you teach me the whole Torah while standing on one foot." It's a famous account, <laughs> and uh, of course uh, 
uh, Shammai, this is the meanie that he is, takes up a builder's cube and a measuring stick and wraps him and, and, uh, and he drives him away. Halil, however, uh, when he comes to Halil, Halil, however, says he accepts him and he says, what's hateful to you to do, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go and learn it. And, and what we understand, we, this is the golden rule, of course. This is Yeshua's. Uh, do, what is good, uh, do what is good to you to others. And that whole idea. Of course, Halil does the negative variation of it, but it's, the same, it's essentially the same teaching. Uh, we see Halil now. It's, in, in both of these Gentiles, he has a different approach to the Gentiles than Shammai. And the third time is that this man is walking near the, near the temple, and he hears... The voice of a teacher saying, uh, these, uh, these are the garments that shall make for a high priest. And he describes the garments for the high priest. And he says, well, the, the garments for a high priest, well, if I, what I, that sounds like a great way to be dressed. Uh, those sound very fancy. I think I'd like to have that. So he goes and he, and he goes to Shemai and he says, I'll become a proselyte, but I want to be appointed as the high priest. And... Uh, Oh, we can we we can know right away um, that uh, Shemai's Shemai's response this time is really you know this is really over the top this outrageous and in fact he repulses him again with a builder a builder's cubit drives him away say how dare you even even be thinking about this he says uh, uh, so so uh, so he goes to Halil now and Halil and he, and he said to him can him and, and Halil then says to the proselyte he accepts him. And he says to the proselyte, in other words, each of these times you see Halil accepting the proselyte and then teaching him. And then he teaches him, he says, can a man become a king, be made a king who, 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 doesn't, who, who knows, uh, can any man be made a king who knows the arts of government? Do you know and study the art of government? And he went and he read. And he came back and the stranger that uh, came to him and said, uh, to whom does this verse apply? And he says, even to the, David, the king of Israel. Uh, and, and from that he reasoned, okay, well, if the king of Israel has to learn how to govern, then, then uh, uh, that you, if the king of Israel, if only David or the one from the house of David can become king of Israel, and you can't just learn to be it, then obviously uh, that applies in the same regard to uh, um, in the same regard to a priest. That you, it's not just a matter of being uh, a, a matter of being uh, uh, matter of being. Uh, an Israelite, but had to be prepared for this, or rather, from the from the requirements made in the Torah to become the king. And so, reasoning there, it must be the same way for a high priest. In other words, Hillel taught him gently uh, that not anybody who could come could become the high priest, but only one from the house of Levi, uh, a Levite, and then also from um, uh, from the tribe of Levi, and then also from the house of Aaron. Uh, so he taught him in a, in a means. Uh, that was acceptable that the, that the Gentile learned. Uh, interestingly enough, these three Gentiles get together and they talk about this. And they said, you know, how, how different this approach is. Uh, and and, and uh, what, what mattered to them. And they said, uh, O gentle Halil, blessings rest on thy head for bringing me under the wings of the Shekinah, under the presence of God. Uh, and and uh, and showed us showed then by that Shammai's impatience, he tried to drive us away from the world. But Hillel's gentleness brought us under the wings of the Shekinah, uh, brought us into the, into into the full measure of becoming, as they would have described, uh, Gentiles becoming Jews that going through ritual conversion. So right away we see this two these two very this very drastic difference between Shammai and Hillel. Now. Um, 
uh, about the year 20 of, before the Common Era, uh, possibly as late as 10 before the Common Era, but about the year 20, um, something occurred, and the Talmud actually tells us about it, and, and doesn't go into a lot of detail, but from various things piecing them together, we can, we can begin to learn something about the issue of Gentile inclusion, something about uh, why it was that Judaism, in the time of Halil and Shammai, uh, and later, uh, Judaism took this drastic uh, had taken this drastic change not only from requiring Gentiles to become ritual converts but actually going a step further. That is what constitutes ritual purity. Not only with regard to Gentiles but in general but also ritual purity or impurity uh, Tameh and Tahor um, uh, with, regard to, uh, with regard to Gentiles also. And in, in the, about the year 20 uh, the it was determined that because Shammai and because Halil had different approaches both to the issue of ritual purity and, uh, and impurity and also Gentiles and how, that, and how those two things related, uh, because they had this difference, it was agreed that they would get together and sort it out. They would have a, they would have a common halakha, a common way of walking out the commandments. Or they would settle the tradition once and for all. Uh, although they may not have been Halil's uh, uh, mind, that's what happened. And in, and in Shabbat um, 13b uh, and also in 17a following, and it goes on and on and on, actually very, very long, we read, in fact, about this, uh, about this occurrence. Now, what, what happened was uh, the house of Shammai uh, and the house of Halil agreed to meet they met in the home of Hananiah ben Hezekiah ben Garon. Now, this man is the son of the founder of the Zealots, uh, or what would become the Zealots. They were rabidly anti-Gentile. They were totally against the Gentile things. Understand, this is the time, early time, uh, within a generation of the first occupation of, of, uh, of the land of Israel by the Roman government. And so there's this, uh, this great abhorrence of things foreign or things not, not Jewish. Uh, and, a, and because of that, there's a nationalistic movement that is the Zealots, of course, and we see them rising up uh, in the years after uh, the resurrection of Messiah. But we see the Zealots uh, uh, actually playing a part in this, in this meeting. They agreed to meet in the home of Hanani ben uh, Hezekiah ben Garom. And uh, as part of this meeting, there were guards there, the armed guards, these Sikari guards, which we will see again in, in, at the time of the destruction of the temple. Uh, the Sikari guards are, are basically, uh, Sikari probably named for the dagger that they carried. Sikari guards are actually um, guarding the door. Uh, it says, uh, the door was open for all, uh, and all came in, but not all left. And, and in fact, Shabbat 17a tells us uh, the Babylonian Talmud tells us this is the day as grievous as the day of the golden calf. That what happened was they all came in to settle this issue about what's our halakha regarding to clean and unclean and Gentiles and the Sakari guards murdered the, the, a number of the Halilites, the house of Halil. And then they took a vote. And after they took a vote, the halakha of Shammai was deemed to be the right one, that they would, that they would follow the, the traditions of Shammai with regard to Gentiles and ritual purity 
and ritual impurity. And remember what we just read about these three Gentiles that went and talked to Shemai and Halil. What approach are we going to get now? What approach are Gentiles going to have? In fact, we're going to see a dramatic, a dramatic shift against Gentiles, against including Gentiles in any, in any way uh, because of this. Uh, this, uh, it says, these, these measures, these rules, these edicts that they came into being, came into being about 20 before the common era. They're called the 18 measures, the 18 edicts. Uh, I've provided you some resources in the work in the workbook about the 18 measures, the 18 edicts, including the reference uh, references in the Talmud. If you want to look them up, uh, but good luck if you look it up in the Talmud because you'll start counting. You may get six or seven and be very hard pressed to find 18. 18 measures. What are these 18 measures? They're highly technical. In fact, you start reading them and going, well, these don't seem to be a big deal, but boy, how do you keep these kind of rules? Uh, and as we're going to see when we get to Acts chapter 15, of course, with very difficulty, we keep these kind of rules. Uh, these, are, these are basically rules that separated not only Jew from Gentile, but Jew from Jew. Um, uh, the Jew, the Pharisaic, uh, the Pharisaic uh, sect, began to be very separated or very distinct uh, not only by, by measures of their piety, but also by contact with Am Haaretz, uh, or the people of the land, those who were not so concerned with ritual purity. Um, we find that, 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 that Pharisees and the very, the very sect of Pharisees uh, and their highly pious state, um, uh, very, very careful about being clean or uh, avoiding being unclean to the degree that not even touching people. Uh, whether they were going to the temple or not. Um, we can see that this, when we read the gospel accounts with regard to uh, clean and unclean or, or uh, tahor and tameh, um, we can see that a lot, of these, a lot of these things come into focus considering the fact that it's only about from 5 to, 15 to, five to 15 years before the birth of Messiah that Judaism takes this sharp swing uh, towards Shammai and begins to uh, very, uh, very uh, um, harshly deal with Gentiles and also with all things of of, of uncleanness or ritual impurity. Now, if you if you study the Torah, then you know that these are things that are are. Uh, matters of life, uh, matters of circumstance, uh, natural things that, that aren't, aren't sinful in and of themselves. Um, uh, but uh, under Shammai and under Bet Shammai, we, we see this dramatic shift towards, uh, uh, towards maintaining a, a position of, of cleanness or tahor all the time at the expense of contact with one another. Uh, we see it in the, in, the, in the marvelous parable that Yeshua tells uh, of the, uh, what's called the Good Samaritan and, and, the, and the level that those who didn't want to have contact, mercy being pushed aside, instead concerned for, well, I wouldn't want to be unclean, so I can't touch this person or help this person. Uh, those things uh, become, very, uh, before, become very poignant after we, after we have an understanding of this dramatic shift that takes place. The 18 measures, here, remember this again, the 18 measures, uh, as the Talmud records it, the day that they were enacted is as grievous as the day of the golden calf. That's Shabbat 17a. This is a, this is a dramatic, sharp, 
point of history in Judaism when the 18 uh, measures are put into effect. They remain in effect all during the time of Yeshua's ministry and for most of the apostolic ministry, the first part of the apostolic ministry, after the destruction of the temple and, uh, and uh, uh, Rabban uh, 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 Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, uh, takes, takes the Sanhedrin out of Jerusalem before the destruction and in fact reestablishes the Sanhedrin uh, in, in, uh, um, in Yavne uh, that after the reestablishment of, of uh, the Sanhedrin in Yavne, that we actually see about the year 80 of the Common Era, we fi- finally see these 18 measures formally repealed. Well, How is that possible? How did that happen? And the reason why is because the, most of the house, or a, a large portion of the house of Shammai, actually has, has died uh, as, part of the, uh, as part of the Roman uh, purging of Jerusalem in the, in the area surrounding in Judea. So we actually see that Halil in numbers is, or house of Halil is actually <coughs> greater. And, and they take the opportunity in 80 of the common era to actually <coughs> re- formally repeal the 18 measures. However, and this is really important, the 18 measures actually had a substrata of rules and halakha that went around, along with them that actually uh, there's a whole, it's not just 18 measures. Uh, in fact, if we were to read uh, um, uh, a, a number of places in, in the Talmud, we can see that, this, that the 18 measures actually had, had repercussions that went on. It's as if, it's as if a, a, a bunch of laws were put into effect and then a bunch of practical, how do you work these things out, uh, laws were then put into effect. And then the laws, the, you know, the original 18 laws were then repealed, and yet that substrata remained in effect. A perfect example is in, uh, this is just one example that is especially important for our understanding of, uh, of the book of Acts, chapter 10 and verse 15, is, uh, and actually Galatians chapter 2, we're going to see as well, is Mishnah Aholot uh, 18. This is recorded in the Mishnah, and, and uh, um, where it says the and it's a, a halot is, is dwelling places or tents, and it here says the dwelling places of heathens or that is Gentiles are unclean. Now this this although this may or may not have been one of the eighteen measures, this remains in effect uh, for in, in two hundred of the common era, well after the repeal. Now one of the things we saw early on is remember remember we saw. Uh, Rabbi uh, Eliezer ben Herakanas, who in the second century said, Gentiles have no part in the world to come. Uh, and we, and we use that quote several times. It is Eliezer ben Herakanas, uh, possibly one of the most quoted rabbis of the Talmud, uh, that in fact takes the case of Halil. And although he was a student, a, a disciple of uh, Rabban uh, Yochanan ben Zechai, a Halilite, who was in fact a student of Halil, um, his student, Eliezer ben Herakhanus, uh, was in fact a Shemaiite. And we can find when we read the Talmud, and this is where it takes a little bit of investigation and, and, and reading between the lines, we can maybe discover a little bit better what exactly those 18 measures encountered, uh, how, in, how deep they went by reading the contest or the disagreements between uh, uh, Rabbi Joshua and Rabbi, uh, Yo, uh, uh, Rabbi uh, um, Eliezer ben Herakanas. Uh, because Herakanas takes the position of Shammai and uh, Joshua takes the position of, uh, Rabbi Joshua takes the position of Halil. Uh, and so we actually begin to discover how deeply this rift went. 
so that even after the 18 measures are, are in fact repealed, we still have a dominant, dominant voice in Judaism that's still speaking for Shammai's uh, position. Um, and this, this, would be, this would be 50, 60 years later, after the, the, after, after the 18 measures are repealed. Uh, ironically, and I've given you this in your workbook, ironically, it is of this very issue not over the 18 measures, but on, Sh- on Halil's, or excuse me, uh, Eliezer's refusal to abandon Halil's position, or uh, Shammai's position, uh, on the 18 measures, e- even 50, 60 years later, that he ends up getting excommunicated himself. Um, he gets excommunicated, of course, we see this, this account, this sad account of Rabbi Akiva, his student, uh, uh, Eliezer's student coming to him and saying, uh, you know, uh, you won't accept the halakha of the majority, so therefore, uh, that uh, the the uh, um, you know our our fellowship is withdrawn. Um, going back to the 18 measures, though, we see the 18 measures as as creating this tremendous uh, schism within Judaism, and the schism is over Gentiles, and the schism is over uh, ritual purity, and we're going to see that that becomes a, a very important piece to understanding Paul's, uh, Paul's epistles. Knowing that Paul, uh, who, again, even though he stuttered, uh, studied under Halil, tends towards, uh, tends towards uh, being Shammaiite in his, in his views until his Damascus Road experience. And then we see that Paul not only takes the position more like Halil, but goes even beyond that, where a Gentile doesn't have to go through ritual conversion to be a part of uh, the community of faith. And how dramatic a shift this is for us. So that when we get to Acts uh, chapter 10 in our study later on, we're going to see that uh, Yeshua's disciples, the first apostles, or the apostles, the first disciples, actually had a very big difficulty with this concept. It was so ingrained in them. The 18 measures were so part of their life, they they couldn't separate. They couldn't tell the difference between what was God's word and what was simply the interpretation of God's word or man's tradition with regard to Gentiles. It was so beyond them, uh, um, so beyond their understanding. Um, the Talmud tells us, the Talmud tells us that the Holy Temple was destroyed in the year uh, 70, we know now in the 70 or the Common Era, uh, it was destroyed because of hatred without a cause. What's hatred without a cause? What does it mean? What, what, what does the Talmud mean when it talks about being, being hated? Well, the Tosefta gives us some ideas. And quoting from Isaiah chapter two and Jeremiah thirty-one, uh, we show that we see that possibly hatred without a cause deals with this issue of Gentile inclusion, uh, uh, possibly and certainly with being separated from peoples. In other words, Jew and Jew being separated by issues of purity and impurity, uh, as they saw it. Go to First Kings chapter eight. Verses 41 through 43. First Kings, chapter 8. Verses 41 through 43. This is the, uh, this is the dedication. Uh, um, Solomon is wanting to dedicate the temple that he's built, the first temple. First Kings 8, 41 says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner, uh, and this is uh, Nakri, uh, not Gir. Uh, so, so this is Solomon speaking. Who is, who is, 
who is not of your people, who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake. For they will hear of your great name, of your strong hand and your outstretched arm. And he comes and prays towards the temple. Verse 43. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, and you do and and do your people Israel, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Uh, now go to Isaiah chapter fifty six, verse one, and we'll read for verse eight. Uh, again, this is that same passage. Isaiah chapter fifty six, verse one. Through eight. Thus says the Lord God, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold of it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner uh, who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. And to them I, I will give, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and the daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. And to the, and the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be a servant, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. And we see here that that it is that, that the temple is in fact related to this issue of Gentiles. Uh, Solomon dedicates the first temple, asks God to hear the prayer of the foreigner from this place. And we see in fact that God, uh, God called them uh, to this house of prayer for all nations. And yet, what was the response in the time before the first century and after? Uh, Rabbi Shammai and, and others of that bent, uh, the Sakari even murdered those from uh, the disciples of Halil that were opposed to the idea of excluding Gentiles, keeping Gentiles out, notting them, not, not permitting them to have any, any contact with Israel for fear of ritual impurity, uh, creating this division between Israel and the nations, not the division that God had ordained, that is, the division of idolatry uh, or following after their ways, but the division that, no, you could not approach the God of Israel unless you were Jewish only if you were Israel. No way could you be a part of the covenant community unless you were Jewish. Not only that, we can't even have contact with you. We can't, we can't go to your markets. We can't buy from you. We can't do the things that are necessary for, uh, for commerce uh, except by following a strict protocol of, of cleanness and uncleanness before we would be, we would be uh, even that we could approach contact with you. Is that what God intended? Uh, in fact, it's very possible that hatred without a cause, the, the reason why the Holy Temple was destroyed, hatred without a cause, is this very issue. 
the excluding of those who had been called, who God had called to be joined, to be grafted in, the excluding of them from the very place that God would later destroy the Holy Temple, saying you have no part in the world to come. Stand at the periphery. Look in. But you're not a part of us. You can have a relationship with God as a god fear, but you can't be a member of this family unless you go through this, this conversion process to become Jewish. You are not of this family. We're, you're of a different family. This is hatred. In my mind, this is hatred without a cause. Um, we know that Gentiles were included, and I gave you a whole list of scriptures to go through. Exodus 12, 19 uh, through 48, uh, 19, and then also 48 and 49. Gentiles are included in the in Passover. There's one law for native-born and for gear. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. They're included in the Sabbath. We looked these up uh, previously last week. Uh, Leviticus 16, verses 29 through 31. Included in the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Go there real quickly. Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, it's important to see this because uh, we already saw Gentiles included in the Sabbath. And if you saw, if you follow through on on the whole notion that the Sabbath is given as a as as God said as a identifier a sanctifier of His people. In other words, that is to identify them, set them apart, be different. That He was sanctified. That He sets us apart. The Sabbath keeping sets us apart. That in fact that uh, that it's an identity marker. Um, it's very important to see, uh, in addition to that, these other feasts are identity markers. Actually, uh, Leviticus 16, 29-31 says, uh, This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh day, on the tenth day of the month, that is uh, um, the tenth day of, of what we would consider Tishrei now, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or stranger who dwells among you, that's Ger Toshav, for on that day the priest shall make atonement for you and cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins. Uh, and then uh, verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. So there, Yom Kippur, Gentiles are included. Uh, Ger Toshav are included in Yom Kippur. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 8 uh, and 9 says, and you shall say to them, whoever, whoever, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, Ger Toshav, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle meaning to offer to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. Uh, the rule regarding offering an offering to the Almighty God applied to Jew and Gentile alike. There's no private altars. You can't offer an offering anywhere. You may say you love God, but then you're going to follow His law, and that is this. It is one place and one place only for, for offering up of offerings. It is only in the, in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, and, in, and then later on we see God honoring Solomon's request that it would be in the temple as well, where he had placed his name. And we see that, uh, that, that God's response, uh, the Almighty's response to Solomon is, I have placed my name there. Uh, speaking of the of the holy temple, go to Leviticus act, uh, chapter eighteen, verse twenty six. We see here. Uh, so we see uh, uh, identifying marker of Sabbath. We see identifying marker of of eating the Passover. We see the identifying marker of of uh, Yom Kippur. These apply both not no, not only to natives, but also to 
the Gentile that dwells among you. Uh, we saw, and now we see in chapter uh, um, uh, in, in chapter 17, we saw also tabernacle offerings. And now we see in chapter 17, um, verse, uh, um, actually go to 17, verse, verse 10 first. Uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10 says, and, and whatever man of the house of Israel, the strangers dwell among you, who eat any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. There it is, a dietary restriction, not only applying to Jew, but also to Gentile who dwells among them. Verse 13, Whatever a man or the children of Israel or the stranger who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. Again, the dietary restrictions included. Uh, and now in chapter uh, 17, verse 15, And every person who eats what dies naturally or was torn by bees, he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and will be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. We saw this last week. This is not only a dietary restriction applied to Gentiles who dwelt among them, but actually the recognition of clean and unclean. Now what was it that we, that we read? That dwelling places in the Mishnah, uh, Oholot 18, the dwelling places of heathen are unclean. And now we read that that uh, that in fact um, that um, we see that Gentiles there is a distinction between clean and unclean. A Gentile could be clean. Certainly, the eighteen measures never takes this into account. The eighteen measures uh, uh, assumes all Gentiles are unclean. Period. The only way that a Gentile has has any hope to be a part of the covenant community is it becomes Jewish. This is what uh, this is the position of Shammai. And even in the position of Shammai, as we saw, those who would eat, were willing to go through ritual circumcision, willing to go through uh, becoming a proselyte, there's still this standoffishness, want, not wanting to, them to participate. It's not our job. We don't care about bringing Gentiles in. The nations can rot for all we're concerned, as it were. Um, and in fact, uh, this is this distinct difference between Halil and Shammai. Uh, Halil uh, being the gracious one who wants to, wants to in fact, uh, bring uh, encourages or is encouraging to those, accepts them, as we see in, in the account, uh, accepts them and then teaches them. Of course, and then he wants them to be ritually converted to Judaism, but at the very least, he's understanding that, that there is an approach. With regard to Shema, he doesn't even care about people being going through under, undergoing ritual conversion. It's a, it's a despising of all things Gentile. Uh, and all people, more importantly, all people, Gentile. Uh, certainly, the ways of the Gentiles were to be despised. Um, and and go, going on now, go to go, chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16, or verse 26. We see that this is extended now, and then not only all these things, uh, but all of the statutes and laws. You shall keep. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or of a stranger who dwells among you. All these abominations the men of the land have done, who have done before you, and thus the land was defiled. So we recognize that uh, the restrictions, the, the God's uh, restrictions, both his positive instructions and his negative instructions are applied to both Jew and Gentile, in uh, both Israelite and non-Israelite, here in the book of Leviticus. Go to Leviticus chapter um, uh, um, uh, 20, verse 12. Chapter 20, verse 12 says... Um, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall, become, shall be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies... Is that the right place? Uh, 20 verse 12? Yeah. Uh, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall sur surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man marries a woman and her mother 
it is wickedness. They shall be burned with both, be burned with fire, both he and they, and there shall be no wickedness among them. Uh, this keeps going here. Hold on. No, this is the right place. Uh, and uh, now going down to verse 22, you shall therefore keep all my statutes, all my judgments, on performing them, that the land where you're where I am, uh, the land where I am bringing you to, to dwell there, that may not buy you out, and you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they are commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. Uh, anyway, it goes on and on here. It was this, this, this idea, though, applying both uh, to the, the Jew and the, and the uh, stranger who dwells among them. And I don't think I had the right reference there. But anyway, go to chapter 24, verse 16 of Leviticus now. Hopefully this is the right reference. Chapter 24, verse 16 says... Um, and, what, and, who's, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall utterly be put to death, and the congregation shall stone him, and the stranger as well with him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. And here's the stranger as well, uh, the congregation. Interestingly enough, the congregation, the uh, kahal, that is, uh, or uh, ecclesia, as it's in the Septuagint, this congregation, this assembly, all Israel, covenant community, Gentiles are included. Gentiles are included in this covenant community. Go to Numbers chapter 19. Um, I, find it, I find it very odd that um, there are groups within Messianic Judaism that uh, want to make this distinction between Jew and Gentile. Uh, it's actually, it's, it's understandable. Certainly understandable. I think it is the it is the same issue that Paul was facing, uh, but in face of of a uh, an understanding, uh, it's understandable when when uh, when uh, um, uh, nominal Christianity takes on this this view that uh, uh, of Jew and Gentile. It is not understandable in my mind of people who know the Torah, because it becomes very clear when you read the Torah that in fact. Uh, that in fact uh, Gentile are you know, the Ger Toshav is included in in the most identifying things that people would identify as Jewish uh, the Sabbath the festivals the dietary laws um, these are specifically the offerings these are specifically and, and directly given to Jew and Gentile alike uh, I think speaking from from a uh, position of silence is not a position of strength. Uh, because all the laws don't name, name the stranger that's among you, uh, or somehow implying that that makes a difference, I think is, is not a position of strength at all. Um, we recognize that God's righteousness is righteousness regardless. That is revealed righteousness given to men and women and children. And his revealed righteousness is his standard. It's not a standard for someone where there's different things. Where we're, we're, with one child, the parent might say, "Well, you can, you can, you can, you can do such and such," but no, your your uh, your sibling can't. When the standard becomes very unfair, uh, uh, a strictness is 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 uh, unevenly applied. That is not a just weight. And to me, it's 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 the it's the greatest revelation, uh, the greatest revelation of a of a failure to understand that these laws were not given as cultural markers. These laws, these good laws that God gave us, were not given to identify a people uh, in a cultural or ethnic sense. They were given to identify a people who were committed to Him, a covenant-keeping people. They were given so that we 
could show his righteousness? Uh, what standard is it when we have different scales of righteousness? What standard is it when, when, depending on our ethnic or cultural background, we have two different standards of righteousness when we, sh- when we speak to the world, when we walk in the world? To me, there's no way, there's no possible way that God could, uh, God intended Jew and Gentile to be different in this regard. It doesn't mean that I'm um, dogmatic in the sense that uh, I, I have no fellowship with people that don't understand the same understanding. But to me, this is, this is the very essence of, of division, it is the very it is the very basis uh, for the division of the second century, where Christian and Jew separated, uh, where 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 the followers of Yeshua who were who were Jewish by birth basically died out and ceased to exist until the twentieth century. Uh, how 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 what a what a great sin. Uh, we, we have brought upon multiple generations by not recognizing, r- recognizing that God has called us into unity. Uh, and I'm getting off track here. Go to Numbers chapter 19, verse 10. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and, and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. So here, the ashes of a red heifer... Again, the same thing, clean, unclean, uh, ritual, uh, ritual purity and ritual impurity with regard to ashes of a red heifer apply both Jew and Gentile. Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 16, the, the festival of Sukkot. Deuteronomy 31, uh, 12, uh, in observing all the Torah, go there real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 31. By the way, the, uh, all the Shlosh Regalim, the three uh, pilgrimage festivals are named uh, as having Ger Toshav, or Gentiles, who dwell among them as participating. Uh, it's very important. Those are all those male among you. Uh, it includes, he specifically calls the Ger included in that. Uh, uh, covenant members, why, why would they, covenant participants, why would they not, why would they not uh, participate in, in the, the covenant community? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse um, Verse 12. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and to carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Here we see this. This is at the end of the Shemitah year. This is the end of the of the seven year uh, cycle with the reading of the Torah. In fact, we see this uh, we see this in Ezra, where 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 uh, Ezra calls all the people together and restores to them this 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 commandment to read the Torah, all of it, at the end of seven year cycle. We know that this is this is where we get our Torah portion uh, cycle reading, where in fact it became something that we began doing every year, uh, and and every every Shabbat we were reading we are reading from the Torah. Uh, what is this command given to? Is it just to is just to those who are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? But no, it is the Ger Toshav as well. Certainly, the descent of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but all those who can be called a part of this covenant community. And the last one is Numbers chapter fifteen. Numbers chapter fifteen, verse uh, sixteen. Where it says, actually, let's go up to verse uh, 14. Uh, and if a stranger 
dwells with you or whoever is among you throughout your generations and will present an offering made by fire sweet aroma to the Lord just as, just as you do, so he shall do. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the, and the, and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Why is this so important for Paul? Uh, why is this so important? His mission, his, his, his task to go to the Gentiles. Uh, we're going to look at this in, 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 as we uh, move into the book of Galatians itself. But one of the things that we see is Paul is, is, is it's very important for Paul to make sure that none of these things... Uh, Ritual circumcision, ritual conversion to Judaism, uh, uh, whether whether Gentiles are clean or unclean in and of itself, uh, none of these things are uh, simply by being Gentile. Rather, uh, none, none, neither of these things should be things that cause division between members of the covenant community. The covenant community must include, in Paul's mind, as we're going to see, in Paul's mind, certainly when there's a scripture we see this, Paul's mind, the covenant community is both Israel and those from the nations. And if it's Israel and those from the nations, then uh, what we have to determine is, how does that affect Paul's message to the Galatians? How does that, how does this background of the 18 measures, this background of ritual conversion, uh, or, or as it's called, circumcision, how does this background affect what he's saying to these uh, mostly Gentiles in these congregations in Galatia? And, and why is it so important? What's going on in the backdrop? And we've read, and we're going to continue to read other things. But we know that this is a uh, this is a huge issue. The 18 measures and the account of the 18 measures prove to us that uh, Judaism, uh, that that uh, nominal Judaism or Judaism at large, all inclusive, all the different sects of Judaism, actually had great difficulty. There was a great struggle over this issue of Gentile inclusion. It's a great struggle. And in fact, uh, it appears that the house of Shammai wins in 20 before the Common Era. It shapes. It shapes the, re- the way that we read the Gospels. It shapes the way that we read the epistles, both of Paul and of James and of Peter and John. It shapes it. Why does it shape it? It shapes it because we have to understand there's a schism. There's a, there's a division there's a struggle, there's a fight that's going on in Judaism. And it has to do not with uh, whether one is saved, whether one has a part in the world to come by grace or by keeping the law. Uh, to a Jew of the first century, that would have been a scratch-your-head moment. Well, why would you think that? What does keeping the Torah have anything to do with, uh, with, with being a part of the community. I'm a part of the community because I was born a part of the community. Uh, the only way I get kicked out, of course, is if I do some absolutely gross things that the Torah forbids. But perfect obedience to the Torah, of course not. Um, uh, that whole concept is is something that we borrow 
uh, first from Catholicism in the second century of the Common Era, and then also from the uh, Protestant Reformation uh, in, this, in the 16th century of the Common Era. And it's not something that comes out of Judaism. It's not something that comes out of the Scriptures. This 18 measures causes split, it rips apart, uh, rips apart, uh, forever cements in people's minds. Uh, understand the, the 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 threat of life, the threat of uh, the threat of being considered less pious. Uh, for for now, uh, from the twenty from twenty before the common era on, where Gentiles uh, Gentiles will basically uh, persona non grata. We want no part of you. Now these strong uh, edicts, these eighteen measures, these eighteen rules from the house of Shammai and the substrata of rules that came in were so strong. They had such deep religious and cultural uh, cultural strength. They became barriers to the God-given duty for Israel to draw the nations to the Lord. The Sorig is a perfect example. Keeping keeping all Gentiles at threat of death from approaching the Almighty in His holy temple. By coming up with a a uh, a uh, a protocol of man-made protocol, a ritual conversion under the guise of circumcision uh, and the 18 measures, we see that we have this deeply embedded uh, in the culture and in the in, in the religion of the first century. Uh, and so, this conflict that we see in 20 before the Common Era sets the stage for Paul. He is the ambassador to the Gentiles. He's the one that's going to go to the Gentiles and tell them that there's good news. And of course, knowing this cultural barrier now, this religious barrier, knowing the background, it's very easy to understand how in fact he's going to have tremendous opposition on all quarters. Not just those outside the, the, uh, the, the family of the way, uh, not just those outside of the congregations uh, of the disciples of Yeshua, or, but also within the congregation of Yeshua. Within the congregations there, whether they be in the land of Israel or in the diaspora. Let's close in prayer. This is from Tzadakim, uh, from, the, from the Amidah, the Shemona Esrei. On the righteous, on the devout, on the elders of your people, the family of Israel, on the remnant of their scholars, on the Gerei Hatzarik, the righteous stranger, and on ourselves, may your compassion be aroused, Lord our God, and give, good, and give goodly reward to all who sincerely believe in your name. Put our lot with them forever, and we will not feel ashamed, for we trust in you. Blessed are you, Lord, mainstay and assurance of the righteous. Amen.